Serial killers were rampant in the 70s and 80s, many whose total body counts we may never know. But what new pieces of these puzzling cases are coming together even now, linking bodies to murders from decades ago? I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? As a young kid growing up in the 70s, I would hear that PSA playing on TV every night before the nightly news. It was kind of designed to instill fear and in a way set an unofficial curfew. Because unlike now, where kids are likely in their bedrooms glued to their phones, my childhood was mostly spent outdoors. Back in my day, kids spent their time outside, roaming the neighborhood, hanging out on the corner, walking everywhere. And during that time, dozens of serial killers were active. Their jobs made easier because there were so many kids just out and about roaming the streets. Which brings me to how today's case evolved. In Jefferson County, Colorado on June 11, 1978, the naked body of 17-year-old Jeanette Baca is found in a wooded area. She's been brutally murdered. Jeanette was said to be a sex worker at the time. Hers was the first body later attributed to a serial killer who not only got away with killing for many years, but actually did time in prison, was then released, and then continued to kill, becoming Colorado's most prolific serial killer on record. In 2013, I began investigating what I referred to then as the runaway girl murders around Denver and Aurora, Colorado. There were scores of homeless teens, runaways, in and around those areas in the 70s and 80s, and even into the early 90s. Kids who, you know, slept on the streets, moved from one group home to the next, slept on friends' couches, and basically wherever they could crash. And then many of them started to go missing. One of the girls I looked into was 18-year-old Carolyn Walker. But Carolyn, she didn't fit into the common Denver Aurora victim profile. She wasn't homeless or a runaway. She was a popular girl devoted to friends and family. She lived at home until she was about to go off to college under an outstanding scholarship having taken gold and silver medals at the 1986 Colorado Gymnastics State Meet at the University of Denver. Still, even though Carolyn didn't fit into the victim pool the Aurora Denver serial killer was preying on, there was something about her case that made me feel like I just couldn't exclude her from my investigation. You see, serial killers, they follow patterns of behavior. When you have an opportunistic serial killer, as this guy seemed to be, that pattern and his victims can deviate. Often, a serial killer will not even realize he is targeting a certain type of female, say petite or with the same color hair or eyes, similar facial features. It's the fantasy driving part of their behavior. It's so ingrained in their psyche, they act almost unconsciously. It's like they don't have to think about it. You know, it's like that victim is my victim, but when you add the totality of them all up, you see that pattern. 
Carolyn had this gorgeous brunette hair styled in that, you know, that puffy 80s, like a heavy metal look, teased high and thick. On July 3rd, 1987, Carolyn borrows her boyfriend's car to drive to work, her usual shift, at a local Domino's pizza. At about 12.30 a.m., she clocks out and begins her journey home. Unfortunately, she never makes it. Later that morning, the car is found in Denver, but Carolyn is gone. From the look of the car, it appears as though she was summoned from the vehicle hastily, abandoning it, and just vanishing. A few days later, her body is found in the Colfax area of Denver, about eight miles from the vehicle. She's been so badly beaten, it's difficult to identify her. While looking into Carolyn's case, I met Aurora Police Detective Steve Connor, and we've remained friends ever since. Steve is one of those old school type of investigators. You, you know the guy. He digs in, relies on his gut, and does not stop until he finds an answer, whatever that answer may be. He'll be joining us shortly to discuss some of the bigger mysteries in this case. But back in 2013, Detective Connor, along with his colleagues, began reinvestigating a series of missing runaway girls. And this is what they do. First, they sketch out where each girl went missing and where the body, if located, was found. Right away, they realize there are striking similarities in the way the victims look and where their bodies are found. Patterns and connections are what can be the most telling when you look back at cold cases. Sometimes just re-examining the same facts you've seen a thousand times and connecting the dots leads to a suspect. A second case I was interested in dates back to 1979, Denver. Stephanie Bowman was a 15-year-old runaway who, according to her family, quote, got hooked up with the wrong crowd and disappeared. Reportedly, she stayed with different people and lived in a group home for a period of time before disappearing. But then two weeks later, in October 1980, sheriff's officers are dispatched to County Road 173 in Byers, just outside the Denver city limits. A body has been found. It's Stephanie. Like Carolyn Walker, Stephanie Bowman's face has been bashed in and brutalized. Looking into this, what I discovered was that someone had taken her out to that area where her body was found and forced her to strip naked. Two people reported seeing Stephanie running barefoot and nude as her attacker chased her down in his vehicle. Now, it's as dark as a cave out there, so, you know, if you can picture this, witnesses see a car and the two lights shining literally like a spotlight on this girl who's naked and running. But nobody stopped? So that's Catherine Law, my producer, and she asks a very good question here. Why the hell didn't anybody stop? From what I understand, I mean, very far away, and the people who notice this drive down the dirt road, and they drive out to this place, and by then the car is gone, and they can't find Stephanie, okay? So they make a call. They make a 911 call. So at least they did something. They did, they did do something. So, But you ask a good question. I mean, those are questions we have to ask in these cases. I mean, there's plenty of people who would just keep driving and not stop to help. So, I think more people would, sadly, in this world that we live in. So these two people reported seeing Stephanie running barefoot and nude as her attacker chased her down in his vehicle. You know, come to find out, she was raped, beaten, and left to freeze to death in a ditch. Her clothes were found in a pile about a mile away. 
The crime scenes and the bodies turning up around the Denver Aurora areas of Colorado in the 70s and 80s, they shared a lot of similarities. So this really told police that they had a serial killer on their hands. I mean, huge red flag, right? And years later, Detective Steve Connor started on the case, focusing on one guy who was said to be responsible for perhaps as many as 30 victims. So Steve zeroed in on any potential Aurora cases that this same guy could be connected to. One was a woman named Pamela Morgan. She was black, pregnant, and a sex worker. She often walked what was called the Colfax Corridor, a busy road that connects Aurora to Denver. Pamela was staying at one of the more seedier, transient, weekly rate-type motels in town. She was found murdered in her room on June 2nd, 1981 by one of the motel's maids. And this is where I might say it gets a little bit personal for me. Pamela had been strangled with a telephone cord. She was five months pregnant. I mean, when I saw that, you know, many of you might know this from listening to earlier episodes of the show, but that was the exact same situation as my brother's wife. She was five months pregnant and strangled with a telephone cord. Not that these cases could be connected, they're not. But when you do this stuff, you come across a case similar to your own family, it triggers a a personal type of pain and your worlds collide. And it becomes very deeply emotional. That must have been really tough. I mean, you're basically having to relive it all again. I mean, I just couldn't believe it when I first saw this. Those are exact details. Reviewing the case... Steve looks at the evidence to see what had and had not been tested and what needs to be retested based upon advancements in forensic technology since the 70s and 80s. For Steve's case, it is the retesting of that evidence that leads to a DNA match with a specific suspect on law enforcement's radar for the past 30 years. We'll take a closer look when we get back from a short break. In 1978, Vincent Groves was 24 years old. He grew up in Denver, Colorado, and mostly lived a life of solitude when not working as an electrician. Groves came from a middle-class family and lived in Wheat Ridge, which is like northwest of the Denver metropolitan area. He had two younger brothers. His mom was a teacher, his father a government postal worker. Vincent was a prom king finalist in high school as well as a member of the student council. Not generally what you see when going back into the early lives of serial killers. This much I can say. He was this massive guy, you know, 6'5", and of course he gravitated towards basketball and football. He played two years of college basketball at Cole College. The Groves family were like these devoted Baptists. His father was even a deacon at the local Baptist church. And it's like, you look at them, you know, this this family, and they're typical of what America was then, right? So Vincent Groves returns to the Denver area in 1974 after dropping out of college for some reason. He just up and left. He spent a lot of time taking care of his elderly grandmother and working a blue-collar job, that electrician, where co-workers later said he was quiet and never bothered anybody. I mean, that comment there is kind of what we get on the nightly news. Ah, he was a great neighbor cut the lawn, and he buried people in his backyard. 
But that was the facade, the image of normalcy serial killers like to project out into the world. In reality, Grove spent his nights driving the East Colfax Avenue Strip, that Colfax corridor I mentioned earlier, which was known for sex work, drugs, and crime. Groves had become a ferocious alcoholic by the time he was hanging out with sex workers, drug dealers, and pimps during the mid-70s. And he soon began doing something else, providing sex workers with crack cocaine. Groves soon meets 17-year-old Jeanette Baca, who I mentioned at the top of the episode. And this is what he does with her. He becomes her pimp. Until, that is, her body is found by two hikers naked placed just off the side of the road down an embankment. Reports say she could have been there up to 10 days. Groves is interviewed by police for Baca's murder, but because there is no actual evidence tying him to her death, he's never charged. 14 months later, Norma Jean Halford, she's 21, disappears. Her vehicle is found abandoned on a mountain road just outside Georgetown, Colorado. Her body has never been found, but get this. Norma Jean lived with Groves. Like they were roommates or they were together? I think he kind of kept her. Okay. I mean, this is like, we're, ta- we're talking about here a sex trafficker, basically, without saying it, I think, in many ways. This, mind you, as Groves is now dealing and doing heroin as well. Which isn't much of a surprise to me since it's fairly common for serial killers to maintain addictions to substances and or alcohol, sex, gambling throughout their career, if you will. That's super interesting because I would think that if you were literally trying to get away with murder, you'd want to be totally stone cold sober all the time so you could be super sharp and on your game. I'd be too worried that I'd get caught if I was drunk or on drugs. So it's interesting to hear that they can often be addicts. I'll speak from personal experience to that because I was an alcoholic uh, for many years, but I was a functioning alcoholic. And and look, heroin addicts, you know, for the most part, they can function, right? It's it's it, they're maintaining their addiction, despite a rather busy extracurricular life. We'll say, Groves meets a woman at church during this period, and he marries her, Jeanette Hill. She is nothing like the profile of the missing and murdered women. Hill is petite and has short hair. She is also not a sex worker and not a drug addict. She attends church regularly. So on paper, you know, she's the polar opposite of Grove's chosen victim, which again, when we look at the spouses or the girlfriends of serial killers, we see this kind of same thing. We, we see this you know, not in every case, but in a lot of the cases. So not like a reminder of his victims, huh? No, I don't think more of a reminder than I think more of um, when they're choosing a victim, that's a special fantasy that's going on in their head. And it's a special idea in their head that they need to live out. Whereas they choose a spouse, you know, they don't want to end up killing them. So they're not going to choose the same, you know. uh, Profile. Yeah, yeah, kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, the marriage obviously is doomed from the start for Groves. But a serial killer such as BTK, for example, who doesn't have any substance abuse issues to speak of, and by outward accounts is able to maintain a resemblance of normalcy, can hold on to a marriage and play the part rather well, utilizing that charm, that wit, that narcissistic personality disorder to help in that regard. Whereas a guy, a guy like Groves, you know, 
just couldn't do it. So what happened to their marriage? His wife kind of is the catalyst for how he gets caught, I'll say. And this is a really interesting part of this case. So in 1981, Groves makes a confession to his wife after an argument they have. He says 17-year-old Tammy Sue Woodrum, the daughter of his wife's friend, overdosed on cocaine while they were camping the weekend before this argument that they had. Remember now, remember the dynamic. The wife is a church-going Jesus believer, and now it was common for these friends to hang around together, Groves included, because he's an electrician. And, and it was a thing where they would go on camping trips together. And it just happened so that that weekend, Groves took the daughter of the neighbor camping. That's it? Nobody else? I feel like at this point, the parents should be like, no, none of us are going on this trip. You know, I would not let my daughter go on a trip with somebody at church. Uh, I just wouldn't do it. But we don't know if Groves lied, if he told it. You know, we don't know the particulars of how this shook out, really. All we know is what the wife ends up telling us. And here she is sitting in the truck with her husband, and he admits not only to her friend's child dying from a cocaine overdose, quote unquote, but that the body of the girl is in the back camper now. And the wife is like, uh, no. what? So obviously his wife is terrified and shocked by this. And yet she talks to Groves and she convinces him to turn himself in. Look, if she died of a cocaine overdose, it's not your fault. Turn yourself in. Tell him what happened. You, we're going to get out of this and we're going to pray about it. And he listened? He listened. Again, this is the narcissism that he has you know, he looks at his wife and says, I can explain to them what happened. Sure, they'll believe me because everybody believes me. In reality, the autopsy depicts a far different version of facts. And here they are. Tammy Sue had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. There are zero drugs in her system. And he thinks he's going to get away with this? Now, here's where this case, and please hold me back from becoming enraged because I could easily go down that road with this next part of it. Groves is tried and convicted of second-degree murder. How what he did to that girl is considered second-degree murder? You know, I didn't mean it, basically. I have no idea how that is even possible, okay? Let's move on. It gets worse. In 1982, he's sentenced to only 12 years in prison. 12? 12 years. That's not even the length of Tammy Sue's life. He got less years in prison than she had been alive. Grove's wife divorces him, of course. But beyond the shocking sentence that measly 12 years a judge gave him, Groves is released in 1987. He spends only five of the 12 years behind bars. And this is in the midst of him being looked at for several additional murders. Why did he get an early release? Prison overcrowding was one of the reasons Even I- Even back then? You, you know, but it's like prison overcrowding, release the guy who's in there doing life for a pound of marijuana. Yeah, for pot. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I don't want to go down this road too far because I- Yeah, it's a whole other episode. I will throw my computer across this room here. So by now, the number's up to 20. That's 20 murdered human beings potentially connected to Groves and the guys let out of prison seven years early. 
Grove's father gets him a job as a janitor of the church his family attends. And his dad says, you know what? You're doing so good post-release after murdering that girl, strangling her and raping her. You know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to give you a car. Now Groves has got wheels. And within a few weeks, he's back prowling the red light district of the Colfax corridor where he started. And wouldn't you know, it's not long before a woman named Sheila Washington and Groves are in a seedy Colfax motel smoking crack when Washington finds Groves' filthy hands around her neck. It escalates into a struggle, and Washington kicks a glass table over, making a tremendous noise. And there's this guy in a room next door who hears it and figures somebody's fighting, because, you know, who doesn't fight in a, in a seedy motel room? And this guy busts the door in, chases Groves out, and Groves takes off. That could have been and should have been the end of Groves' deadly run. But as often happens with Johns, Washington did not know Groves or his name. She couldn't identify him. So Groves is back out stalking the Colfax Strip again for a long time, mind you, before things take another turn. One night, a full year later, Washington, that woman that he had tried to strangle in the motel room, spots him cruising the Strip. So she flags down a police officer close by who then stops Groves. But the cop questions him briefly and lets him go. I mean, really, he doesn't have much to go on, but this sex worker saying, he's the guy who strangled me and you got to arrest him. You know, there's really not a lot to go on there. But he's on their radar now. And finally, a month later, police arrest Groves on attempted murder charges in relation to that incident in the motel room. So she obviously did not let it go, went to the police station, filled out a report, and now they had his name. He is then connected to at least half the women law enforcement is looking into at the time. But as his trial for attempted murder gets closer, a judge decides, guess what? None of what law enforcement has learned about Groves can be introduced to the jury. Not one of his prior charges. Even worse than that, a jury doesn't believe Washington. And in under two hours, acquits Groves. Two hours. He walks. The guy walks. So as I get my rage in check on the flip side of the short break, we'll hear from Detective Steve Connor about the way this all shakes out. Steve Connor is a retired detective from the Aurora Police Department where he began working cold cases in 2007. It's also where he spent years investigating Vincent Groves. So I thought hearing Steve's account of what happened would be a fascinating layer to this story. What's up, Steve? It's good to have you come on the show. I, I've been looking to talk to you for a while. Yeah, it's been a while since we've actually hooked up the last time. It's funny, the case that we're going to talk about, uh, because it's something we really never talked about at length. But you come into the case later on, right? I had heard of Vincent Groves probably the, the second year working cold cases, where two other investigators from the sheriff's office had given me kind of a background on him. So I said to did some research on my own to figure out who this guy was. And, and I was told that some of our unsolved cases were probably related to him. And eventually I was able to determine that he was involved in at least one uh, Aurora homicide from uh, 1981. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, you know, you look at Vincent Groves and he comes from this kind of solid upbringing. I mean, church-going family, 
He goes to church. He gets the scholarship. He's six five, massive man. What stood out to you about Groves connected to some of these cases? The fact that he was a rather large man, he could easily overpower a woman or most women. And he was selective in, I guess, the prey or the targets that he went after. I don't know how much of his time was involved in actually stalking them. I don't know that he did that. I think it was a, an opportunity where he would maybe pick up a prostitute on Colfax or someone that maybe was hitchhiking and somehow get them comfortable with him to the point of having some type of an encounter with him, whether it be drugs or alcohol or sex. And during that encounter, he would just decide, I'm taking the life of this person. In 2007, 2008, when you start really looking at a potential serial killer, you're looking for patterns. Uh, Something you said is interesting to me, and it's how important location and victimology are to catching these types of guys. So what, in this case, what stood out to you about that? We had started looking at him, and I say we because there was two other investigators from the sheriff's office in Arapahoe County. We started looking at specifically what we call body dump cases, where women are just basically discarded in various parts of the the metro area. And we started just simply putting dots on a map and putting names with those dots and dates with those dots, trying to figure out if there's a pattern which we kind of look for, or a specific, you know, race or or uh, profession or you know, hair color, things like that, that would maybe tell us here's a common denominator within this particular crime. We found most of the uh, body dump cases we're looking at were what we call high-risk victims. They were either they hung out at bars or hitchhiked or were employed in, in the area of prostitution. And they would be easy targets for someone like Vincent Groves, who I think developed his I don't know, his ability to uh, attract women to him, and then he would just end up terminating them over a short period of time. I don't think his was a long-term thing. I think it was from the time he left Colorado, went to Iowa, a couple of years later, came back because he just simply dropped out of school. I believe something happened in that, that short time period, and he just decided that whether it was um, I'm going to rid the world of these type of people, or I just enjoy the easy prey. And he started with that and continued until he was actually incarcerated. I mean, in your estimation as a detective, as someone who's looked into this guy, how many do you think he killed? Well, I, uh, I don't really do the math on things like that. The ones I believe he gets caught for or convicted of is just a fraction of the numbers he's probably did. Because when I started looking at him, again, other detectives that I talked to said he's probably good for this one case in a motel room where the victim was strangled with a telephone cord. And I'm going, that's great, but it's been sitting, you know, cold for almost 30 years. Wow. And so I started digging into it and I'm going, yeah, he probably did it. How am I going to prove it? So he didn't admit to any cases that there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict them on. So when I looked at this case, he'd already been dead for, you know, 15 years. So I started going through all the evidence, all the evidence had been tested, but 
the technology, the DNA technology had advanced so quickly that in 2012, I had resubmitted some of the evidence that had been collected back down to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to have them reanalyze and swab some additional items to see if any DNA, more specifically, any male DNA could be um, extracted from any of these items I sent down there, put the lab request in, sent the evidence down there, and sure enough, we were able to, or they were able to extract male DNA from one of the items that I had submitted. And you're pretty confident, as I am, I think, too, that he is not responsible for the victim that actually we met about, which that's how we became friends many years ago, Carolyn Walker. I'm not totally convinced. Um, I can tell you that I think we also discussed the Donna Wayne case. I'm fairly certain I know who did that. He's incarcerated on uh, one other homicide charge. He did a stint in prison for another one. I'm not sure. I, I, I wish I could say he wasn't, but I'm not 100% certain because the evidence that we have, the Carolyn Walker case has been examined and re-examined and examined a third time just to see if we can find any male DNA. But her case was a little tough because she was a body dump case. We didn't find her in a hotel room. She was a body dump case in East Aurora along I-70. And it had been several days that her body had been out in the the elements, but the elements were the summer ones, which Colorado gets very warm, very dry. So the bodies decompose a lot, a lot quicker or they mummify a lot quicker. And any evidence that would have been on her would have been gone by the time, you know, the, the autopsy was done. So what evidence we have in Carolyn's case is very minimal and it's all been examined and we have found no male DNA with that evidence but I'm still not 100% convinced that he is not involved in it. Back in the late 70s, early 80s, even to the mid 90s, when we did the plotting of the body dumps on the map, we estimated there was probably anywhere from two to four working the metro area at that point because of, I guess, the clusters of bodies where they were located, the difference in the method of how they were disposed of, were they strangled, were they shot, were they, you know, was the strangulation, was it um, manual strangulation or ligature strangulation? All those things had come into play that we were able to separate some of those out. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you and catch up a little bit. And, uh, you know, Vincent Groves is a, a nasty man who did bad things. And I'm, I'm glad you took part in, you know, at least answering some of these cases for the families. Well, yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I believe he's probably going to be involved in more and the, the technology may advance to the point where they'll be able to find out, yes, he's involved in these additional homicides. And get more answers for families. As Vincent Groves' trial for that attempted murder convenes, detectives are in the process of using advancements in forensics to tie Groves to several murders. He's then arrested on murder charges almost right after the acquittal. Thank God. By 1990, Groves is convicted of two murders, Juanita Lovato and Diane Mancira. These two cases I want to point out become the forerunners for DNA forensic profiling in the state of Colorado. Forensic DNA typing was then in its very earliest stages, yet a strand of DNA found in both of the victim's underwear matched a strand of Groves' DNA. Groves is sentenced to life 
in prison. While in prison, Groves develops hep C and suffers chronic liver problems. By 1996, his body has given up the fight. Groves dies at the age of 42 in 1996. And I'd like to just say amen to that. Over the years, with Groves dead and buried, he is connected to a slew of murders through DNA. That number is kind of a question no one can really answer for me. I mean, I get all kinds of different estimates. I mean, in my estimation, 30 is definitely overreaching simply based on how sloppy Groves became. Uh, 20? That to me seems potentially plausible because of the area we're talking about and the access he had to a lot of victims. Officially, however, Vincent Groves is connected to seven murders. I want to end today's show by just saying thank you. It's truly humbling for me, and I'm grateful for every single listener. Aside from hearing stories like the one today, please remember something. Your chances of being killed by a serial murderer and being killed by lightning are nearly the same. So there's no need to be alarmed by what you hear here. You're pretty damn safe. I'll see you here next week. Sources for today's episode come from a KDVR news report titled Investigators, Serial Killer May Be Responsible for Unsolved Murders, Chasing a Ghost, a 5280 article by Robert Sanchez, a Denver Post article titled Deceased Serial Killer Linked to Murders of Four Colorado Women, and a CBS News AP article, Deceased Serial Killer Vincent Groves May Have Had Up to 20 Victims from 1970s to 1980s. Crossing the Line is executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bocci, executive producer Christina Everett, and audio engineer Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney.